This morning's reading comes from uh, Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. But this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard singing and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed you. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you. Why don't you just take 10 seconds, turn around to the person next to you and say, wow, it's been a beautiful morning. And it has been a beautiful and powerful morning already. Uh, our time of worship, thanks to the worship team. Lauren, thank you for leading us so powerfully this morning. And just to hear the work of Hard Places and the work that Jesus is doing through you guys there has been incredible. So I've already felt quite moved this morning. Um, and as we look at this, in, this incredible passage of Scripture, I hope that and I pray that the Holy Spirit will move our hearts. 
Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this story that was told to us by your son Jesus, that we might understand the immensity of the gospel. And I pray this morning as we look at this teaching that you will help us to enter in and not just understand it intellectually, but for it to move our hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we are going to look at this incredible parable, uh, this, which many people have said over the years to be the greatest story ever told, the greatest story ever told, because what we have in this parable is, I believe, the clearest and most powerful and, if understood correctly, most shocking expression of the gospel in all of Jesus' teaching. And in order to hear this story clearly, partly because this story is so familiar to us, we know it so well, we have to address a couple of issues. The first is that this story should almost certainly not be called the parable of the prodigal son. For one thing, there's two sons in the story, and both of them do what is wrong. Both of them are sinners, but just in very, very different ways. And today, we'll only have time to focus on the first son in the story. Last year, we actually looked at the second son in this parable. We're going to revisit that again next week. There's so much more to mine out of this story. So I didn't cover everything I could have said last year, not by a long shot. So we're going to look at the first son this morning and the second son next week. Secondly, the, the main character in this story is not one of the other of the sons. The main character in this story is almost definitely the father. And that's what Jesus wants us to pay attention to. For it's the father's actions in this story that are truly surprising. And what I hope to show this morning is that for the original hearers of this story in the first century, being told this story in first century Israel, the real prodigal in this story is not the sons, but the father. The word prodigal actually means recklessly or scandalously extravagant. And my friends, that is a perfect description of the father in this story. Uh, to us, that is unbelievably good news, absolutely. But to those whom Jesus first told this story, it would have been unimaginably offensive and scandalous, shameful, in fact. And this is the kind of story, I believe, that would have almost certainly convinced the scribes and the Pharisees to whom Jesus is telling this story that it is time for Jesus to die. He must go. That's why this story really should be called the parable of the prodigal father. And according to verses 1 to 3 of Luke 15, Jesus' intended audience for this story was, as I mentioned, the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders. Luke tells us that the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around Jesus, yet the religious leaders were complaining about this to each other. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. This man, this so-called rabbi, welcomes sinners and he eats with them. You see, the scribes and Pharisees thought of themselves as both the protectors of Israel's law, teachers and protectors of Israel's law, and also the protectors of the reputation of Israel's God. And they were, that was their role, to protect God's reputation, to make sure that people were doing the right thing so that God's name was not shamed. So as far as they're concerned, by his behavior, Jesus is shaming God's name. He is shaming God's reputation. It's not just wrong, what Jesus is doing and teaching, it's blasphemous. It's not just wrong, 
He's not just breaking a rule. He is being blasphemous. How dare this man claim to be sent from God and to speak for God? It's impossible. Just look at the company he keeps. Tax collectors and sinners. The unrighteous, the unclean, the unwelcome people who are under God's judgment, as far as the Pharisees were concerned. People who are unclean, unrighteous, unworthy were under God's judgment. How could you possibly associate with those kinds of people, Jesus? Shame on you. Shame on you, Jesus. How could you possibly sit at the same table as those people? Well, these tax collectors and sinners were drawn to Jesus, we're told. They loved to be with him. Literally, in their thousands, they were drawn to him. And horror of horrors, not only did they come to Jesus, Jesus welcomed them. He enjoyed their company. He loved to be with them. And they could tell that. We, they could tell that the Pharisees and scribes didn't like being around them, but they could tell that Jesus liked being around them. He enjoyed their company. He wanted to be with them. Luke says he welcomed them and he ate with them. And if you, you see in the ancient world, as in many cultures today, to sit at the same table as someone and to eat with them is to signify acceptance, is to signify that we are the same, that we share a, a loving relationship with one another. So for a rabbi who speaks for God to eat with sinners was to imply that they, and by implication God, welcomed those lawbreakers at his own table in loving relationship. Which as far as the religious leaders were concerned, a holy God, and we were singing about this morning, a holy God would never do that. He would never associate with tax collectors and sinners. But this is where they were so, so wrong. Where they had so tragically missed the heart of God. And that is why Jesus tells this story to these Pharisees that they might see what they have missed about God, that they might see what the Father whom they worship is truly like. And he tells this story so that not only them, but I pray also you perhaps might see what you have missed about God. In fact, Tim Keller goes, on, uh, goes to describe this parable like this, that Jesus is saying here that every thought the human race has ever had about how to connect with God, whether east or west, whether in the ancient, modern, or postmodern era, in every religion, in all secular thought, has been wrong. Every human idea of how to connect with God is wrong. Jesus is here to shatter all existing human categories. A historian once said, and it's hard for us to grasp this, when Christianity first arose in the world, nobody called it a religion. It wasn't seen as another religion. It was in fact called an anti-religion. It was seen as against religion. And it's one of the reasons the early Christians were persecuted so heavily, because the Romans thought of themselves as very religious. And here's this movement of people who don't appear to be religious at all. It's a threat to the state. So for 200 years, the Romans called Christians atheists. Get that into your head. 
The reason was that the Romans understood that what Christianity was saying about God was so different to any other religion, it really shouldn't even be given the same kind of name. It was in a whole other category altogether that they did not understand, that they did not even recognize as a religion, and they were right. And this passage tells us why they were right. So the first thing that the context of this parable tells us is that the reason Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners is because that's exactly what God would do. Because Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. So by implication, Jesus sitting with tax collectors and sinners is God sitting with tax collectors and sinners. After all, didn't Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? If you've seen the way that I love and forgive, to forgive sinners, well, you've seen the way that the Father loves and forgives sinners. That's why this is often called the greatest story ever told, because if you can come to truly believe what is said here about the Father in this passage, about the nature and character of God, you will never be the same. It will change you forever. Now, as we dig into this story, uh, I want to express my immense debt to Daryl Johnson, who we encountered when we were doing a Revelation series, who was uh, my professor of pastoral theology at Regent College, and who also introduced me to the work of the biblical scholar, Dr. Kenneth Bailey, and his incredible historical work in this passage, who both opened my eyes to the depth of what is happening culturally in this story. So much of what I'm going to unpack around that today is due to their insights and uh, so, Lord, we pray now as we look at this passage that you'll open our eyes and our hearts in Jesus' name. Now, at the beginning of the parable, the younger son goes to his father and asks him to give him his share of the inheritance while his father is still alive, which is effectively like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, and I want my share of the inheritance now. I wish you were dead, and I want my share of the inheritance now. Now, in his book, The Cross and the Prodigal, Dr. Kenneth Bailey points out that such a request was unheard of in that culture. In fact, it was unimaginable. And one of the reasons is that the inheritance was not money, as the story tells us, it's land. The son is asking the father to sell off a portion of his land and to give him the cash. And as the, as the younger son, he would have been entitled to about a third of the property. But at the time, in Israel at that time, land was almost never sold, right? It was held in families for generations because it was everything. Your whole wealth was tied up in your land. And so for a man of that time, much of your identity, the father in this story, is bound up with the land. And to lose your land was to lose yourself, was to lose your identity, was to lose your work, your employment, and to lose, therefore, your standing in the community. The son is asking the father to tear his life apart, to tear apart the family, to tear up his standing in the community, to tear up his family's future. It is so shameful, it is again simply unimaginable that a son would say this to his father at that time. So Kenneth Bailey asks, if a son of that time were to make such a request, what would happen? And the expected cultural response would be that the father would severely beat his, his son, almost to the point of death, and then he would exile him from the family forever. That's what would happen. 
his son would be beaten and then sent away. And he'd be told on the way out, you are dead to me, you are no longer my son. The son's request is something that was just never done. Although not against the law, technically, it was unforgivable. It was disgraceful. The son is tearing apart the family and bringing agony to the father. How could a son act like this? How could he possibly act like this? And Kenneth Bailey says that here we learn, in fact, the basic nature of sin. Sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin is primarily the breaking of relationship. And that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The real sin the son has committed here is to break his father's heart. And remember, friends, this is a parable that Jesus is telling about God. And what does the father portrayed by Jesus do in this story? Does he beat his insolent son? No, against all expectations, he grants the son's request. We're told he divided the wealth between them, verse 12, uh, as Jesus says, and he then lets the son go. And he does not even say, as everyone listening to the story would have at least expected, never come back. You are no longer my son. This is no longer your family. The father didn't even say that. I mean, against all expectations, he granted the request and he didn't say what he should have said. Those listening to Jesus' story here had never seen a Middle Eastern patriarch respond to a, such an insult in this way, let alone have understood God to act in this way. So Daryl Johnson said that this tells us so much about the love of God. It is not possessive. God's love gives us the freedom to refuse to be loved. There are times when God lets us have our own way, even if God knows that it will hurt us. He will not force us to do his will. He will not force us to stay, even if, uh, sorry, if we don't want to, even if it breaks his heart. The story then tells us that following this, the son quickly liquidates his assets, right? Why? Kenneth Bailey says, because having heard what the son has done, the intensity of the community hatred and disgust begins to mount. Like the story is now getting around the town that the father has had, well, as soon as the father sold off the land, everyone would have known, and immediately the community hatred and disgust begins to mount. At every turn, he's greeted with amazement, with horror, and with rejection. Life in the village is getting dangerous. In their disgust, the villagers are becoming hostile toward the younger son. He has to get out of there. So he liquidates his assets, and he gets out of town. And he goes as far away as he possibly can. We're told to a far country. In other words, into Gentile territory, far from his own people. And he quickly squanders his money on loose living, Jesus tells us. And we don't need too much imagination to know what Jesus means. So he burns through a third of his family's long-held generational wealth, partying with his friends. Well, the friends he had while he was still able to buy them drinks anyway. And pretty soon, a famine hits, and the money's gone, and the friends are gone, and he begins to feel in need. And you can probably guess why he doesn't go home at this point. He would have to face uh, the mocking of the villagers as he passes through the village gates. Shame on you. You went off to enjoy the good life, and for what? Look at you now. You're hungry. You're dirty. You're broke. A disgrace. You brought shame on your family. How dare you show your face here in this village. How dare you? He would know that if he comes home, that's what will greet him. 
So he's not willing to do that yet. And then the village elders would almost certainly try to beat him and drive him away. After all that, there's no guarantee that the father would have even been prepared to see him. No self-respecting father at that time would have. As far as he would be concerned, his son is dead. The son is not yet prepared to face that kind of humiliation. Instead, what does he do? He hires himself out to a, a wealthy Gentile and ends up doing a job that is almost surely intended by Jesus in this story to be the greatest image of abject disgust to any Jewish person looking after a Gentile farmer's pigs. It doesn't get any worse than that. Actually, it does. It gets worse. We're told the young man has nothing to eat. And so the story implies that the landowner he's now working for doesn't pay him or even feed him, but presumably permits him to scrounge whatever he can find to eat after the pigs have finished eating. Have you ever seen pigs eat? You've seen what they eat. Can you imagine it? Jesus says that after this, the son finally comes to his senses. Thank God that the Lord in his grace sometimes allows us to face hardship when he needs to bring us back to our senses. Sometimes suffering is intended to give us wisdom so that we will change the way that we are living, if we'll allow it to teach us. So the son says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread and yet here I am starving to death, having landed in a situation that for most Jews of that time would be literally a fate worse than death. So the son thinks maybe, maybe, maybe if I go back uh, and face, um, face the taunting of the village, and face the hostility of the elders, and even the wrath of my father, if I say to him that I'm sorry, and if I say it well enough, if I say, sorry, 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 perhaps my father will take me back, not as a son, that will never happen, but as a hired servant, maybe he'll let me come and work for him. At least those servants have food and a place to sleep. The son knows he has no chance of ever being restored to the family the best he can hope for is to become an employee. So he puts together this speech in his mind, this speech of repentance, and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So there's two parts to this speech of repentance. First is, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Part one. Part two, make me one of your hired servants. And I can imagine the son walking home, the long journey back, rehearsing this speech over and over and over, just trying to get it pitch perfect so that he can at least get it out when he faces all of what awaits him in the village. And everyone listening to this story would have known that should the father have even been prepared to see his son and listen to his son's speech and maybe accept him back as a servant on the farm, that would have been so much more than the son deserves. That alone would have been unimaginable grace. But what does the father in Jesus' story actually do? Does the father give what the son deserves? And here, friends, is where we come to the heart of the story and right to the heart of the gospel. Right to the heart of the gospel. Right to the heart of what 
God is really like. Remember, Jesus is telling this story to justify his behavior, which to the scribes and Pharisees already considered shameful and scandalous. Well, I tell you, friends, Jesus is only getting warmed up. Jesus says that while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him. Even after everything the son has done to his family, the father has not given up on his son. The image here is intended to show us a picture of a father who's been out every day scanning the horizon, looking down the road for his son, waiting for him to come home. And then Jesus says, the father saw him and wasn't disgusted and angry and offended. He saw him and he felt what? He felt compassion for him. The word Luke uses here means that it hit him right in the guts. That's what the word means. It got him right here. He saw his son and he went, oh, there he is, there's my boy. And he ran to him. The father was so moved at the sight of his son, his half-starved, dressed in rags, limping home, penniless son, after wasting his family's wealth, that he was torn up on the inside. And he ran to him. He was moved with compassion. Parents, you know the feeling. If one of your children suddenly goes missing at the shopping mall or the park or in a crowd, as has happened to us, Immediately the fear hits you, my child is missing, and it's visceral, it takes you over immediately. Every part of your body and your mind suddenly goes into a panic. It's horrible, but the instant relief you then feel, the immediate joy that just washes through you when you finally spot your child is so powerful, and that's what's being described here. He was moved with compassion, it barely cuts it. Imagine finding a child that has been lost to you the flood of relief that would wash through your body and your mind. It's so powerful. It's not just a feeling. It's an emotion that grabs you, heart and soul. Remember, this is a story that Jesus is telling about God. He saw his son away off and he was moved with compassion and he ran to him. And the father does in this act something totally shameful. You see, Bailey says that in the Middle East at that time, a man of that father's age and stature never ran in public anywhere for any reason whatsoever. To run, you know, what they're dressed in robes. To run in public meant lifting up your robes, exposing your legs, which was totally shameful, and then possibly your undergarments as well, and then running down the road. No self-respecting Man of his standing at that time would have done such a shameful thing, but the father doesn't care. He hitches up his robes and he runs down the street to greet his son. And we're told that he can't wait to embrace him. And for another important reason, as he runs to his son to head him off before he enters the city gates, the reason the father does this is because he knows as soon as his son reaches the village, he will be mocked and humiliated and taunted and possibly beaten by the village members and the village elders. So the father runs to head that off, to make sure he gets to his son first. And then we see the father doing the next thing, the most shameful of all. Jesus says the father embraced the son, threw his arms around him and kissed him, weeping and kissing his son with overwhelming relief and joy even though the son would have been covered in 
the dirt of the road and rags and grime and sweat and pig swill. The father does not care. Doesn't care. Sees his son and he runs to embrace him and he kisses him and he welcomes him. What a humiliating and shameful picture that Jesus is painting of God. The father should have refused to see the boy. The father should have considered him dead. But no, this father has been waiting and longing, suffering each day for his son to come home, so that when he saw him, he put aside all self-regard. All self-regard and ran to him and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Can you imagine the scene? Just try to picture this in your mind's eye with me for a moment. Can you imagine this scene? Can you imagine the horrified looks of all those standing around watching this unfold? And this is the thing. This is the most important thing that we often miss. By doing this, what is the father doing? He is identifying himself with his son. He is identifying himself with the shame of his son. He is identifying himself with the sins of his son. By embracing his boy, the father is transferring all of that shame and all of that sin and all of those wrong actions and choices and decisions onto himself. Which means that whatever the villagers are going to do now, whatever the elders are going to do now, whatever the rest of the family may have wanted to do now to the younger son, they would have to do it to the father. And then the son begins his speech of repentance. It has two parts, as I said. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, part one. And yes, the father lets the son confess that he has done wrong that he has sinned. And this is really important because it's vital. There can be no real forgiveness without confession. There can be no real reconciliation without repentance. It's vital for the son to not just forget about what he did, but to acknowledge that what he did was wrong. It is vital that he do that. But just as the boy is about to say part two, now let me be one of your hired servants. Let me earn my place in your house. The father interrupts the son's speech. The father will not let him continue. The father does what, as Daryl Johnson says in this moment, when the father interrupts the, the son's speech, that interruption is the gospel. That interruption is the gospel. The father cuts the son off. He will not hear it. We can say it, but God will not hear it. It's irrelevant. God will not let us try to make up for our sins. God will not let us try to pay the debt back. Because how could we? How could we possibly earn a place in God's household? How could we possibly pay a price high enough to receive our status back? God will not let us earn our way back into the family. The father interrupts the son because there is literally nothing that the son can do to make up for what he has done. There is literally nothing the son can do but come home, but come home. That's all God wants, that we just come to our senses, we turn around and we come home. 
that's what God wants. And then the father calls for the son to be dressed in clean robes. The family ring is put back on his finger. New shoes are put on his feet, which means now the son could walk away again, uh, but the father doesn't care. He puts the new shoes on his feet. And only sons, by the way, wore shoes in the ancient world. If you were an employee of a landowner, you weren't permitted to wear shoes. Only sons got to wear shoes. These are all signs that the father has not just welcomed the son home as a servant, but has welcomed him home as a son. As a son. He has restored him against all good thinking, all good sense, to his full previous status as a son of the father's even though the son has committed such gross, disgusting, and offensive sins. It is scandalous. And the Pharisees and the scribes listening to this story would have been horrified, horrified that Jesus is painting a picture of a God who welcomes back sinners who have squandered their inheritance and have debased themselves by working for Gentiles, feeding and eating what pigs eat. Like for the Pharisees and scribes, there's no image that, that Jesus could have painted for them that it would have been more of a horror to them, that God the Father would welcome back people like that. That is the worst thing that Jesus could have said if he was wanting to preserve his life. And then the father in the story kills the fattened calf, enough food for the whole village, and throws a party, for I tell you, there will be rejoicing in heaven, Jesus says, at one sinner who repents. And so, friends, this is the story that Jesus tells to explain why he eats with tax collectors and sinners. For our God is a scandalous father who is prepared to act shamelessly, who is willing to be humiliated, who is willing to embrace us when we're covered with the swill and garbage of our failures and sins, who kisses us when we've just spat in his face, who runs after us when we've rejected him and broken his heart, who meets us at our worst and so identifies with us in his love that our sins are transferred onto him, even though it cost Jesus our life, his life, sorry, Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That is what Paul said, and that is a beautiful illustration of this text. That is what God was prepared to do in order to bring his lost children home. That is the reputation God wants proclaimed to the ends of the earth, our God, is a scandalous, shameful father, a prodigal who is willing to identify with us in our worst, in the death of Jesus. And not just welcome us home, friends. I'm going to finish with this. He gives us back our name. What were we singing before? I am who you say I am. I'm not who I think I am. I am who you say I am. He gives us back our name. He gives us back our dignity. He gives us back our status as children of God. He gives us back what we have squandered. 
grace upon unimaginable grace, the scandalous father of a prodigal. This story is the story of a prodigal God who is so recklessly extravagant with his love that he will stop at nothing in order to bring his children home, even if it means going all the way down into the most humiliating death that you can imagine. As an outcast criminal nailed to a cross. And so, friends, the only reason any of us have been found by God is because God has always been looking for us. The Word became flesh and set off into a distant country in order that he might call his lost children home. That's what God did in Jesus, and that's what he's still doing today. He's looking for you, friends, and he's looking for your children and he's looking for your grandchildren, and he's looking for your husband or your wife, your friends or your colleagues. He is looking for every lost son and daughter on this planet, and no one is too far or too bad for God to bring home. Next week, we'll look at how no one is too good for God to bring home. But today, we're looking at the first son. And this, friends, actually is one of the reasons why we run the Alpha Course. And we had over 70 registrations now for our off course, which is amazing. Because it's the greatest privilege in the world as the church of Jesus Christ to sit down with God's lost sons and daughters as their siblings and then share a meal with them and then invite them back into the family and throw a party for them when they do. Because nothing brings joy to the heart of God like a lost child who has been found and come home. That is the good news that we proclaim, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. I'm invite the band to come on up. Lord, I thank you that you love us in ways that are just unimaginable that go so much deeper and wider and higher and further than we will ever understand. And I pray for those this morning that have lost that confidence that they are loved by the Father, that have begun to doubt, begun to wonder. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that the good news of this story and the immensity of the gift of your death would go deep in us right now, all of us. And we would be renewed in the promise that you have gone as far as anyone could ever go in order to call us home. And your blood still speaks a word today of that promise that no one is too far or too bad that they cannot be saved. 
And if we begin to wonder this morning whether we really are forgiven, whether we're really loved by the Father, I pray that this story would resonate in our souls, in our minds, in our hearts to tell us that yes, every promise of God in Christ Jesus is yes and amen. And I pray that that would be the confidence upon which we build the whole of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.